1: And everyday innovators see innovation opportunities frequently, making products better, making products that customers love, improving processes, creating something that is new, often a product, and solving problems. And the word innovation, it can be phrased as in a new way. When I first thought that, I thought, wow, what a great way to convey innovation in a new way. And it's a good reminder that we are making something new that didn't exist before. And that means making changes. And most groups and organizations, they struggle with change. For innovators, that's a real tension for us. We are about making change while the organizations we work in are largely about resisting change, doing what they've done before. To help us understand how people can make change with us and not resist us, I invited Barbara Troutline to join us again. She is an organizational psychologist who has helped many leaders and organizations get better results by navigating change. She's also the creator of the Change Intelligence, or CQ, system, which she teaches others and wrote about in her best-selling book, Change Intelligence, Use the Power of CQ to Lead Changes That Sticks. She spoke about some details about that system in episode 141, which you would find at com slash 141. And in this discussion, I wanted to go a little bit deeper to talk about how change actually happens in organizations and how CQ, change intelligence, enhances existing change models. I think you're going to really find this valuable. And remember, if you hear anything you want to go back to, we talk about a lot of details. I'm going to put all that in the show notes, a summary of the discussion at com slash 256. So check that out for a summary and all the links that we talk about too. Now let's talk to Barbara. Barbara, welcome back to the Everyday Innovator podcast. I'm so glad you're here with us. Thanks so much for having me back, Chad. We are talking about change. You are a change guru -guru with a book out and a program, and you help companies a lot with change. This is really important to us. And when I say us, I just want to set the stage here a little bit about how I feel about the discussion that we do all, all the time on this podcast. I literally do think of us like sitting down in a coffee shop, just talking with each other, and we have the great pleasure of all these wonderful product managers and innovators that are part of the discussion we're just the ones talking right now, right? And it's that feel that I, I enjoy so much, and I want listeners to know that too. I'm inviting everyone into our coffee shop here. As product innovators, and we go by all kinds of titles, right? Product developers, managers, project managers some of the time, lots of titles. But anyone working with products, we're really the instigators of change because we're doing something new. We're making a new product, or we're taking an existing product and making it better. And we think that's the best thing in the world. And sometimes, okay, in reality, a lot of the time, we run into some barriers in our organization in the process. And if we're doing something really cool, we think this is a great idea and it's going to really create value for our customers, it seems like there's these antibodies that come out in the organization. You know, you think about it as an actual living organization. There's antibodies that start attacking anything that is different and say, no, no. This is not the way that we've done it before. We're going to you know, continue down the path that has made us successful, and, and they prevent things that are new. And it's really hard for innovators to you know, work through that at times. Um, let's just talk about the nature of change. Why do these antibodies exist? Why is it hard for organizations to actually change?
0: Yeah, I love that question. I love that analogy. And anybody who's interested in that topic, um, again, I'm an organizational psychologist by training, and I love the work done by Keegan and his colleagues on immunity to change. Um, that's a that's a fantastic read, a fantastic reference. And to your point, just like we have immune systems in our bodies, what's the point of our immune system in our body? It's to protect us from harmful invaders, yeah. right? And so in organizations, as you notice, we have um, let's say antibodies that will, um, uh, you know, want to keep us stable in this turbulent environment that we're dealing with in, in industries around the world, yeah. and, and to protect us from constant external threats. Um, however, so so that's a, so you can look at it as a really a good thing, right? Um, however, sometimes in our bodies in our organizations, um, our, our immune system can attack good ideas and positive change. So, um, and, and the result of that can be just like in our bodies, um, you know, what is, what is arthritis, for example, right? It really is um, our, uh, our immune system, right? You know, fighting, uh, fighting ourselves. And so it limits our ability to absorb and integrate innovations and the adaptations that we need to adapt and survive. So back to biology again, I mean, I love the concept of dynamic homeostasis um, from biology that, you know, any system from our bodies to our organizations, we need to have this dynamic interplay between stasis or stability um, and constantly adapting to survive and thrive in our organizations. And I think that's, that's kind of the challenge and that I know is a lot of the frustration that, um, that especially folks in uh, the product management world absolutely face.
1: Yeah, we see that in projects all the time because they're doing something new and different as well. And developing products, all that work takes place as part of a project. And this is hard to navigate, right? It's discouraging. It's been said before about innovators, right? If, if we are on to a really good idea, we know it when everyone else thinks it's terrible, right?
0: Uh, <laughs> I love that. And, uh, yeah, and I love that quote from um, Thomas Kuhn um, that um, and, and Joel Barker, who's done a lot of, uh, you know, we all know about paradigms and paradigm shifts, right? And, mm-hmm. and um, so Thomas Kuhn wrote about that in the you know early 19th 20th century. And then Joel Barker, who's somebody else that your your audience might benefit from researching, he's wrote a lot about the tactics of innovation and getting good ideas um, accepted. Um, he, he has a great quote that said, those who think something can't be done should get out of the way of those doing it.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and
0: so again, and, and you know, the whole paradigm thing I think is so interesting because just like looking at the immune system in an organization, you can look at that as a positive and a negative, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it has both and it can have both functions. Any strength overdone is not so much a strength anymore. And just like the Chinese symbol for change, right, is a combination of danger and opportunity, crisis and opportunity. I think any change um, definitely has both sides. And clearly, the uh, product mo- uh, managers are usually on the side of the opportunity, right? right? But also, they've been thinking about it for the longest and they've been dealing with. Um, Thinking about the problems that the new product or innovation is intended to solve, whereas those folks on the other side are at the threat stage, right? They're looking at you know the danger um, that and all the problems and the hassle that moving in a new direction might cause. Um, so if you're interested too, I can I can talk a little bit more about that. I don't know if you Chad had a chance to expose your audience to some of the research around the neuroscience of change or leadership.
1: Oh, I would love to. Let's dive into that.
0: Yeah, fantastic. Well, this is something that um, some research that's really come up a lot in the last decade. And if, you're, um, if your listeners or viewers are interested in learning more about that, I would highly recommend, for example, some of the work by David Rock and his colleagues at the Neuro Leadership Institute. So again, I'm a psychologist by training, right. not a neuroscientist. However, what neuroscience research has showed us that when neuroscientists uh, put electrodes on people's brains <laughs> and they study what happens uh, neurologically when people get introduced to a change or exposed to a change, what happens is the same neuroreceptors fire in our brains when we get exposed to change as when we feel physical pain. Huh. Isn't that fascinating? Uh-huh. So in a very real sense to our, cha- to our brains, change equals pain. <laughs> so that means that all of us change leaders, and I do think we're all change leaders regardless of tenure, title, or role, and clearly any pro- product manager is a change leader. Um, that's what we're doing. I think it gives us a lot more empathy, right, yeah. for the, as I say, the targets of change the people we're trying to influence. Um, and I think it's also a really empowering message for all of us because we can look at that immunity to change, that resistance to change as being bad and wrong as right. something that is a signal that we're doing something wrong, right? Because we're trying, you know, and our focus can be trying to overcome this resistance. But if we, ex- if we look at it as normal and natural, right, mm-hmm. just how our brains work, just how we're designed as human beings, it really can be a very empowering kind of uh, bit of information for us as change leaders.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting discovery in the neuroscience of the change and pain is reflected the same way in our brain. The, the way I usually think about that, you talk about empathy, I think that's a really, a really important point. When people resist change so much, what's really going on there? I've always put it in terms of, well, they know how to do their job today. They're showing up to work, they know what to get done, and they're getting a paycheck for that, they're taking care of the family, and now we're we're asking them to do something different. And that is literally scary because they don't know if they're going to be successful the same way they have been doing that new thing. They haven't tried it yet, Right. And that threatens, am I still going to be getting this paycheck? Is Am I going down a path that's going to be good for me and my family or not?
0: Yeah, that's great. There's a, um, uh, uh, many case studies you can download from my website, and one of them is about a gentleman who built his own change intelligence that 's what I talk about leading change by being smarter about mm-hmm. it, building your own change intelligence and He wrote about how, when he was a frontline foreman at a steel mill, that he basically has a quote that says exactly that that he knew that his employees did not come to work today, hoping that he would change something right. <laughs> that um, you know they were not they were not looking forward to that, and so he knew that in fact, a lot of times his role was to be the buffer. Between his people, and he used to be one of them, like working the, you know, uh, working the line and all these, you know, crazy ideas <laughs> that were come down from above. One of my, uh, one of the first people who found my book when it was published on change intelligence six and a half years ago um, wrote me and he said, Barbara, you had me at CQ. I love the idea <laughs> of CQ change quotient, right? I really and do he too. Said, I know, right? And he said, but you should, your next book should be SQ, stupidity quotient for all the stupid ideas. that." So again, that's, you know, we're always a victim, right? In some ways of, of, of the past and other people's exposure to changes that didn't make sense. So yeah. again, it helps us have that, that empathy for, you know, why that immunity change, why that resistance to change exists.
1: Yeah. There's this yin-yang thing going on, right? It's two sides of the same coin. And some changes are really good, and some changes aren't. And some organizations feel like they're in a constant state of change, and employees just get really worn out by that, right? And and that's, I think, another contributor to resisting change. I'm reminded of, of an interview I did a while ago, and I had to go look it up. It was episode 194 with Deluxe Corporation where they went through a disruptive change, that they changed kind of their core product. They're a company that prints checks, paper checks, right? And there's not too many of us using paper checks anymore. Turns out businesses still do, but not too many of us anymore. And they were introducing a technology to do e-checks, so just like an email for businesses, and you can deal with checks that way instead of having to deal with paper. And their organization's 100 years old, and their employees really resisted this change. This is not what we are about. And just trying to navigate through that change was really interesting to hear about in that episode and, and what they did. I think any of us as these instigators of change, right, product innovators, when first time we run into this, what are we likely to do? We're going to go ask someone how to deal with this, or more likely, we're going to go to Google and, and start looking for change models and try to figure out some help around Okay, what are the things that one can do? I know the first time I kind of encountered this formally, I was part of a team helping with the ERP system, enterprise resource planning system for a large corporation. And they had created a change management team, right? This whole group of people just to deal with change. I'm like, "Oh, what what's that about? We're putting it in the system, we'll train everyone how to use it. This will be great." <laughs> and did it realize we're actually changing people's work behavior a lot. I'm interrupting the discussion just for a moment to tell you about a really interesting experience I had recently at a professional conference for product managers and innovators, the annual PDMA conference. Now, it was a great experience because I got to help so many people. And one form of this was several times a person that I helped in the past, they came to find me. They sought me out to introduce me to someone else that they were talking to. Someone that wanted to mentor their product managers to help them perform at a higher level. They recognize how important product development and management is to the success of their work and the organization. And they talk about this in terms of the increased pressures that they have. We all recognize this as product people. Wanting to create products that customers love. That's what everyday innovators are all about. We get that. But also products that meet revenue and profit expectations. We have to do that. And that can be delivered more quickly, decreasing time to market. That's a lot of needs to deliver on. And that's exactly what I help organizations do. And I have an excellent mentoring system for groups of product managers. It's called the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, or for short, the RPM Experience. Kind of catchy, RPM Experience. If you lead product managers or you are a product manager at a company with other product managers, the RPM Experience is how you can create a higher performing product team. And I have a quick guide that tells you how the system works and the results it provides. And you'll find that at TheEverydayInnovator.com slash RPM. It's helping other companies pull ahead of their competition and helping product managers work together better, enjoy their work more, and just be more effective. And I bet it can help you too. Check it out at TheEverydayInnovator.com slash RPM. So when we try to get our hands around just making this really practical, how does one do change? And we go out and Google this, we come across some change models. A uh, popular one is Cotter's model that's out there, like the eight steps of change. And there's others that you would find too. And you have all this work now on change quotient to help kind of infuse these change models. Maybe just as a place to you know to carry on the discussion here. What about this Cotter model or another model, if you want to talk about how does that work and where does that get us in in reality and practicality?
0: Yeah, fantastic. So I'll definitely start with the Cotter model because it's one of the most well-known ones out there, right? And Cotter, um, you know, he was uh, one of the early gurus in um, uh, in change and learning about change and change management um, back when I started in business in the late 80s, early 90s. So um, so it's very well-known. And actually, several clients, multiple clients have, integrate, have used the Cotter model to this day and have integrated change intelligence with it. Um, because first, let me talk about what the Cotter model is for a moment in case your listeners mm-hmm. aren't familiar. And then I'll talk about um, how to um, even leverage it more effectively, because um, it can be effective. So Cotter's model, he talks about that there's, um, uh, based on his research at Harvard, he's a Harvard leadership guru, um, that uh, that leaders of benefits from going through eight um, an eight step model, eight step process. And so the first step is create a sense of urgency for the need for change, right? As you said, to break past that, um, you know, that, that, that stasis part of the homeostasis. And this is the way we've always done things. Um, form a powerful guiding coalition of people who are senior enough, have enough authority to make the change happen. Create a vision for the change and empowering vision to move forward. Communicate the vision, um, remove obstacles standing in the way of the vision. Create short term wins so people can really see that it's possible. Um, get that momentum going, build on the change, um, anchor the changes in the culture, and so those are the those are the different steps. Right? right. And then, you know, kind of install the wedges, as we know, from um, back in the day from uh, um, uh, Duran and uh, and Deming. And, you know, and, and so we don't slip back. So the change really sticks. So uh, so what what Cotter so that, you know, again, he came up with that out of late 80s, early 90s. Then a decade or so later, he wrote another book that was called Leading Change that that was published in. Um, then he wrote another book called Accelerate. Accelerate the eight steps because what he realized over time was that while that model worked, that linear model, stepwise model worked uh, for decades, uh, decades, now there's, we live in such a time of turbulence and disruption and constant change that change needs to be the way we, the way we manage change needs to be far more iterative, Uh right? And so, so that's why he uh, created, uh, right? Accelerate, accelerate the eight steps, um, do it in a different way. And so, um, so I sat back about a decade ago and I said, you know, we have so many models and methods like the Cotter model, model, uh, model, which are powerful, which are research-based. And at the same time, we still have this high failure rate of change. Cotter and his team were the ones that came up with the original 70% of organizational changes fail statistic back in his book, Leading Change in, in you know, the early 90s. And, you know, fast forward about a decade ago, McKinsey and Company, a global consulting firm, did a similar study about the success and failure rate of major organizations. Changes, product launches, um, you know, strategic um, reinventions like you described, with moving from paper to electronic checks, etc. Uh-huh. 70% fail, they can move the same statistic. So we barely move the needle in 20 years. Why is that? Well, I think one of the reasons is we do focus so much on change management. We do focus so much on project management. Um, and and that's necessary, but not sufficient. Because a lot of what change management, project management is, it's all about the the stepwise model it's all about the tools and the toolkits and the spreadsheets and kind of the idea is that we can control the change that we can plan we can we know all the variables we can just you know if we have an effective enough kind of plan and process laid out then we're going to you know again a stepwise a plus b plus c equals the effective change in fact you know in our age of disruption change is so turbulent and we need not just change management or project management we need change leadership. And that's yeah. the gap that CQ is intended to fill is that we need, we as leaders, and we're all leaders, regardless of tenure, title or role. You don't have to have formal people management in your title. We're all leaders, especially anybody listening to this. Um, and so we really need to be able to build change leadership capability in addition to change management capability, starting with ourselves and then also for our teams. And then also, I believe enterprise wide for our entire organizations.
1: Uh-huh. Okay, so there's a lot that I want to unpack a little bit. First, on this personal leadership issue, I think that's really important. I've always regarded when we're going through something, some kind of change in an organization that I, I recognize is going to help move us forward, right? So I'm, I'm at least bought into the notion of the new vision. I have a responsibility with my peers, right? So I'm not in any leadership position with my peers, but with my peers to convey why I think that this is a good vision, why we should be a part of this, Right. Because I recognize if we don't move together, this isn't going to happen. It's going to be be a failure. So I think that personal leadership dimension is really important that you still have influence with others, even if they're not people that you officially, you know, this notion of a leadership hierarchy, but you have influence over your peers still. Thoughts on that personal leadership perspective?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, again, as an organizational psychologist by training, um, I know that, um, you know, what, uh, what do we have in every organization? We have an organizational chart right? Uh-huh. An organizational chart. Um, however, um, and supposedly that's supposed to delineate and depict for us where, um, you know, the, the levels and the titles and the roles and the authority. Um, but we often know just like it's kind of a fantasy to think that we can completely manage change and control change, right? It's kind of a fantasy to think that that actually describes the power and influence in organizations. So I always say that, yeah, it's important to know the organizational chart, right? Um, and, and, Yet also, in addition, it's very important to know what I call the organizational x-ray. Mm. And that's where things really happen. And that's where, you know, really decisions get made and, you know, coalitions and and um, all that good stuff. And so um, there's some also classic research um, uh, in my field by French and Raven um, that talk about the power bases. And they talk about the bases that we have, um, power bases and organizations. And so, again, the kind of philosophy is that power is a good thing. Right. Uh-huh. Power is a good thing. Power is the ability to influence and make things happen um, with and for others, not necessarily to or in spite uh-huh. of or against others. Right. Because um, we need to do change collaboratively and together. So anyway, what French and Raven talk about is that there are certain power bases that are given to us by our organization, by virtue of our formal role, right? Mm-hmm. So we do have authority. We have the authority card, do it because I'm the boss. <laughs> we have the, you know, reward card, do it because I can, you know, give you um, promotions or benefits or whatever. And we have the discipline card, right? Do it because there could be consequences, right? And I'm in a position to dole those out. Um, however, we also have personal power bases, right? That are, that are developed by ourselves. And so, for example, we have expertise. We have power because we have expert knowledge in something. We have informational power. We have now, we have power because we have access to certain information that others, others don't. And we have good willpower. We have the power to build rapport. Sometimes people will follow us simply because they trust us. They respect us. Um, we have good relationship with them. So uh-huh. the beauty of this model is that what French and Raven's research also show is that all of those six, right, authority, reward, discipline, um, expertise, information, goodwill, all of those legitimate sources of power that we benefit from wielding at times if we need to, right, to achieve our goals and, importantly, our organizational goals, collab, you know, all together moving forward. However, those different power sources have different implications. So, people who rely or over rely on the, or, on the organizational power bases, it's much more likely that what they're going to get in their colleagues is compliance, huh. is compliance, sometimes ma- ma- malicious compliance, right. And sometimes outright resistance, right? right. However, leaders at all levels who yield their personal power bases more, right. And more effectively in from sharing information, demonstrating their expertise, building goodwill is much more likely to result in commitment commitment to their new ideas, their new approaches, right? That willingness to, you know, um, maybe not completely buy into the vision right away, but listen, to Uh engage, to partner, to give their input and feedback. So I think that that is something that, again, any of us could learn to leverage even more effectively. How Uh do I tell the story so people really get it? How do I, I think so many of us leave gold on the table because we, we, we don't, proactively build relationships, build that goodwill until we're on the firing line, right? And we know from Stephen Covey, for example, back in the day, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, he talked about how building relationships with people is like putting a deposit in your emotional bank account with them, right? Mm -hmm. And in times of change, and when you're making a big ask, you're gonna have to make a withdrawal. So, any way that we can be proactive and building those relationships, building the teams, building that climate of empathy and trust and mutual, um, uh, you know, um, you know, help and uh, psychological safety, as as we say, also, I think is um, is so is so important.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So you hit on so many points there that speak to us as product managers, product innovators. Because that issue of power, and I want to dive into this in just a bit, but I found a a quote on one of your blogs I want to refer to. But we have this issue of we don't have actual power. We have, hopefully, influence with others. We need to be building relationships, building up those that might support us in the future, or at least listen to the ideas that we can help to influence. Mm. So there's really big issues for us as product managers around that and that notion of making those deposits into each other's lives, like our savings accounts, and build up that goodwill is really helpful. There was something you said back. a moment ago, it was kind of a mic drop moment for me, though. Um, And I think at the heart of a lot of this uh, issues around change, you said change management is necessary, but not sufficient. And, you know, you have a whole book about this and programs, but tell us what makes it sufficient. What are the pieces we need to put around this?
0: Yeah, fantastic. So again, I think that, um, yes, change management on all, you know, the, the, the tools and the spreadsheets is very important to lay out an effective plan, um, uh, for the change. However, the, the missing ingredient, um, that we really need is that change leadership. Um, and that's why I developed this concept called change intelligence or CQ. So just maybe going back for a minute to, um, uh, um, the, the psychological parts of change and the neuroscience of change that, uh, you know what happens in our brain when when uh, we get that fear threat response evoked, right? Um, what happens is that we. Uh, uh, what we know happens physiologically is that, uh, that uh, fight, flight, freeze response, right? Uh, that, you know, people, they want to, they want to fight. They want to argue against the new idea. <laughs> they want to fight. They want to run away for it. Or they just freeze, right? They, they don't know what to do. They're mm-hmm. paralyzed. Now, what all those three reactions have in common is that the good stuff that feeds our brain, the oxygen, the glucose, it gets sucked down past our neck so we can fight, flight, or freeze. So what all those reactions have in common is that change literally makes us dumber. Change literally makes us dumber. Just when we need all our cognitive capacity to be able to deal with the iterative nature of change, with the with the with the problems that are going to occur, with the best laid change management or project management plans, right? With the with the unexpected resistance we're going to encounter, um, with the setbacks, with with the delays, we get dumber too. Not only do those who were leading through change get dumber, right? You know, when we're approaching them, right? Um, they get fear, they get threat. Um, th- we do too as change leaders because we get that push. Back We get that resistance. We get those problems. Our brain goes into fear threat mode also. So we, so what happens to all of us is that what happens to our brain then, right? Going back up to our brain is that what we know is that we go to our dominant responses. We go to our habitual dominant responses, things that we've done in the past, which is why you hear this is the way we've always done it. Right. Um, we go because, you know, we're threatened by this new world of people doing banking electronically. Right. And not wanting our printed checks anymore. We're afraid and we're just going to keep pushing, doing more and more and more. And that's what that's what causes even more resistance in other people. Right. When we look at um, uh, that, uh, I I, so often that what looks like a resistance in other people is an opportunity for us as change leaders. Again, the other side of the danger threat (laughs) Uh Uh, that so often we when we encounter resistance, we go to our strengths we go to our strengths in terms of how we know that we're successful in leading change. Either we uh, were, I, I talk about we lead change from the head, hard hands, right? So, right. so some of us, our strength is leading from the head. So what do we do? We talk about that exciting vision more. We want to promote it. We want to push it. We want to say, don't you get it? And we get so frustrated because people don't see the gold in what we're giving them, right? Because we're not giving them what they need. Some of us were very process oriented. So we show them, we've got this beautiful plan to lay it out. Don't you see how well resourced this is? Don't you see how, logical and efficient this process processes. And we try to convince them with that, but that's not what they need, right? They want to see how is this going to fa- impact the business? How is this going to help us deal with these competitive threats, right? Um, and sometimes what looks like resistance is people, you're handing them a plan or you're having handing them a vision, but they haven't had soap time. They haven't yeah. had a chance to think about how it impacts them. So really what's on their radar it's how it's going to impact me and my job or my team or my competence or my status or whatever. They're thinking about the personal impact. You haven't engaged the heart. Right. So I always say that behind every complaint is a request behind every complaint is a request. And if we can reframe resistance, from our enemy to our ally, right? Look at that resistance as a powerful source of information that we can use to control the only thing we can, which is ourselves and our style of leading change, right? That's how, that's where we get the um, necessary and sufficient, right? That's Mm -hmm. how we have all of those great project management, change management tools in our toolkits. We can lay out a great plan. We can have the business case for change. We can show the vision. And on top of that, we have that agility, We have that adaptability. We have that smarts that change intelligence that we know that when things go awry, when people push back or resist or challenge, we can't adapt. We have all these tools in our tool bags and we have options in leading change, not just Mm -hmm. our dominant response, right? That we overdo, but we're smart. So I always say that building CQ, it's like in the stress of change when your IQ goes down, building CQ is like putting your own oxygen mask back on first. Right. When your IQ goes down, remember you have a CQ, right? You have your CQ change intelligence and remember that you can breathe. You can, you can say that I've got other tools in my tool bag. Just because my go-to response is this. Wait a minute. I'm seeing this type of resistance in my stakeholder. I need to sit back and take another tool out from my tool bag. I need to attempt to engage with change with them in a way that they want it, which is the Mm -hmm. heart. They get it, which is the head, and they can do it, which is the hand. So that's right. why I think it's an empowering message, and that's why it's a good complement to all the other change management, project management tools we have in our toolkit.
1: It really is bringing in kind of the emotional perspective when we look at emotional intelligence, EQ, you know, being more yeah. self-aware. And as you talked about, you know, if change is making us dumber in the moment, we need tools at our disposal to help us still be self-aware at the moment. And that, you know, when you hear the complaint, it's actually a request. I love thinking about it that way. And the request is, I don't get it, right? How is this impacting me? How is it going to be good for us? There's more to that. And those three dimensions that you talk about, and we covered the sum back in episode 141 to kind of get some grounding on this too, about the differences in the responses to change, right? The head, the heart, and the hands kind of approach. And it's good to be self-aware to kind of help us respond in the way the person needs. And a great example, I may have shared this back in the episode when we talked before, but organization I was working for was going through a really large change, and they were trying to get us all to buy into this. And one day we got invited, uh, told to go actually, to this workshop, and we didn't really know what it was about. And we showed up, and it turned out we were going to be drawing a tree in groups, drawing a big tree of this change. And how this tree was going to impact us and the organization. And it fell so flat with me because I wanted to hear logical reasons for why this change is actually going to result in more revenue for the organization. Not draw a tree, right? And I'm sure there's some people that were there that went, oh, this is great. This is really connecting to how I think about this and helping me through it. It didn't work for me at all. Mm-hmm, right?
0: mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so that's very savvy that um, and that's why we say that um, any change needs people, purpose and process. Right. Um, head, hard hands. It needs and it a, needs a, you know, a, a, a vision for it. Right. A purpose. Um, it needs an effective, efficient process and it needs to engage people. Um, and so therefore, any change leader needs to fire on all those cylinders in their communications, in their attempts to, um, and they have to be savvy in terms of being able to assess what their people what people that they're attempting to influence and partners would need in that particular situation. So sometimes I say that the most, um, uh, but we can lead in a way that works for us, right? Like to your point, um, right. That, that, that probably really worked for, and, and, and I think that approach might've even worked for you if it had been rolled out later. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, again, I, I, people really want to, like you said, um, have the bigger picture context, which was very obvious to the people rolling out the change because they had been living with with some, but maybe not you. And so um, at the time, right, when it's first introduced. So I always say, too, that I think the most effective change leader tool we have in our toolkit is the ability to ask powerful questions. Huh. Right? right. Ability to ask. Right. Because if, if, if the idea is to reframe resistance from enemy to ally, use it as a powerful source of information that we have to be able to tease that information out from our key stakeholders, ask them those questions about what do you see as possible here? Um, Where do you see how we're going to fail? What are the risks? Um, What are the positives, right? And really hear from their perspective. And that is what's going to be able to help help you, right, target your influence strategy. Again, Mm -hmm. not pushing and forcing, communicating in a way that works for you, but really designing, right, just like we're intelligent when we plan and design our products, really designing an influence strategy that's going to engage for change.
1: Excellent. Barbara, I appreciate you sitting down and talking with me in my virtual coffee shop here. This has been a, a great discussion. So many more points we could go into, but I try to keep the conversations around 30 minutes for listeners to know what to expect. Listeners also know that I love innovation quotes. What quote did you want to bring and share with us, and why did you choose that one?
0: Yeah, so I chose a quote from you from Rosa Bess Moss Cantor, who was one of the very early innovators, also a Harvard leadership guru, um, fellow Michigan grad, (laughs) but been at Harvard for many years. Um, She wrote Change Masters back in the day. This quote is from um, another one of her books called Evolve, and it's, Hmm. if you can dream it, you can do it, is not necessarily true. If you can dream it and make others dream it, you can do it.
1: Hmm. You need that coalition.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Especially when you're up to big things like your audiences, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are things we can do ourselves independently, obviously. Um, But, you know, again, what's that other quote that what does it take to change the world? You know, um, a small group of committed people, right? Right. So you need a few other people pretty much typically. And a lot of times what you're all up to, um, quite, quite more than just a few.
1: Yep, that's really good. If you can dream it and make others dream it, you can do it. Thanks for sharing that with us. One reason why I wanted to get back together and talk with you, not just because change is so much of our world as product innovators, but I discovered, I should have discovered this earlier, that you also have a a program to help people dive deeper into the material, Change Quotient Certification Program. Tell us just a little bit about that and how people can, in general, find more resources from you to help us deal with change and just get help.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of free resources on my website, just to mention that first. Um, people can download two free chapters of my book. Um, there's case studies about people, teams, and organizations that have built their change intelligence that you can download. There's an ADAPT tool, ADAPT, that you can use to start right away building your own you know, change leadership capabilities, your own agility, your own change intelligence. Um, and if you do want to take a deeper dive, I invite you to join me for the CQ certification program. Um, the neat thing about it is that I do... versions inside organizations private customized versions if you're interested in that um to bring me in um in-house however i do have a virtual version that's a public open enrollment class um that people can take from anywhere around the world it's web-based and so it's um it's pretty flexible. And so I do it about two or three times a year. Um, The next session is starting in January. It's a series of seven 90-minute webinars. They get recorded. So if you have to miss one, you can listen in. Um, And you do learn how to build your own change intelligence. Um, You learn how to use change intelligence to influence others and engage for change, how to build change intelligent teams, and how to analyze and manage your projects from a change intelligent perspective. So again, the next session starts in January, and there's an early bird pricing discount of $500 off the regular investment. That's good through December 6th. Mm-hmm. So um, so I invite you to check it out. You know, Again, my contacts information is on the website. You can learn more about it on the website, but I, I invite you to join me for it.
1: One reason why I like what you've done with CQ, this change intelligence notion, is I think it's a way to get us into, admission Mission Before, into EQ better. So we know that emotional mm-hmm. intelligence, research tells us that people that are high in emotional intelligence, that means they're self-aware about themselves, how they interact mm-hmm. with others, and they're self-aware about the others, uh, their impact on others, that those people that are good at that are twice as effective as leaders. And your change intelligence helps us be more self-aware also as we're trying to influence others. I think that's a, a really good connection.
0: Yeah. And just to say, that's the other reason that I developed change intelligence to fill two gaps. One was in the change management and project management space that we need to augment those with change leadership. And the other one was in the leadership development space. Huh. Um, I would say CQ plays well with others and it also plays well with other other leadership capabilities that we need to develop. So I do train in emotional intelligence and change intelligence because very similarly, it's all about being more self-aware and being able to adapt your style. Right. Mm-hmm. For those that you are that you are working with. And so um, I also believe that just like um, people who are much more uh, emotionally intelligent are much more effective in life and work. The same thing with with leaders and product managers who are much more change intelligence. You're much more um, successful in getting your new ideas adopted. Right. And people on board with it and reducing resistance. Um than, than those who are, you know, unaware and un- in action. And just also to say, building on that is that um, what I've also created is a change intelligence assessment um, that if you want more information about, you can, you know, read about it on my website, contact me. And a free assessment comes with each copy of my book. Um, so you can take it online. It takes about 15 minutes to complete and it results in a customized report of your style along with developmental recommendations. so
1: Excellent. Providing some really good insight, self-reflection is always important. I love those tools. Barbara, thank you for all the information. Thanks for your body of knowledge on this change intelligence issue for us and how we can be better change people ourselves.
0: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again, Chad.
1: Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. You know, this is where product leaders and managers make their move to product master, learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. If you are involved in change it is a sticky situation, and I hope that you'll go check out Barbara's resources that she shared. Go to the show notes to find all the links to those resources. That's at the everydayinnovator.com two five six. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to the
0: Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit the Everyday Innovator.com.